0: Can I please ask you to join me in giving a warm welcome to the London School of Economics, the Right Honourable David. Thank you
1: very much. Thanks, Kevin. Good afternoon, everyone. It's very nice to be back at the LSE. This institution has a very important part in the life of my family. It's 79 years since my dad fled Belgium in 1940 with his dad. Germans invaded, and he, um, a, he came to West London. He uh, signed up, he uh, got a place at uh, Acton Technical College in Ealing. And quite oh, amazingly, it makes me really proud. After a year, English was not his first language, or actually his second language, because at home he spoke French and Yiddish. So his third language of English, after a year, he got a place at the London School of Economics. Uh, Harold Lasky was the professor of field science. And so it's 78 years since my dad came to the LSE, and uh, the LSE at that point was in Cambridge. So he spent a year in the LSE in Cambridge, uh, before he then joined the Royal Navy. Three years later, he was de um, I think the story's been told before, but when he left his ship in June 1945, the commanding officer said to him, Goodbye, Miliband don't vote Labour. <laughs> and that was his parting shot on month before the July 1945 general election. And my dad came back to the LSE, uh, finished off as an undergraduate under Howard uh, Lasky, and then he was a graduate student when Lasky died, and uh, was asked to take up his course, his graduate seminar on political science. And uh, then something which we were talking earlier, it wouldn't happen, uh, these days. My mom was a refugee from Poland and she came here at 12 in 1946. And so, in the early 1950s, she became a student. Yeah, and so my dad was a teacher, my mom was a student, and then they lived happily ever after you know, together. So, both sides of my family have a very deep connection to the LSE. Those of you who know, the history of the school will understand what I say. All of the history of my parents from the school is not um, harmonious, uh, because the late 60s were a tumultuous time for the school and how it treated students and uh, the like. But it's still a very warm—I feel I have a very warm feeling my time, and I know that this was an institution that actually embraced both my parents when they came to uh, the UK, so it's meaningful. To be one very nice thing, if you'll permit me, before my time allocation starts, before the the standards of time start running out, uh, I think this is quite nice, actually. You mentioned very kindly the Little program, and the origins of it are actually quite nice, and to speak to something, I hope this isn't a pompous point to make, Um, the program was endowed in the 1990s, uh, when a man called Bob Woollinger died uh, he led a reclusive life in uh, Thailand, in Bangkok, he worked for the Ford Foundation, and he died in the 1990s. And he left all his money to create the Miliband program I received because he said that when he was a student here in the 1960s, the graduate seminar in political science that he had with my dad was the most eye-opening experience that he'd ever had. And so it was a very nice thing that I always think of the Milliman Programme, which has lecturers coming Actually, Robin Archer is here, who organizes and runs the program. Um, it's actually a celebration of teaching, which I think is a really important uh, point. Anyway, that's not why we're here, but I'm pleased to be here. Um, three years on, think, from the referendum on Brexit, rarely have we needed the worldly, informed, open-mindedness of Maurice Fraser help us navigate the minefield that is around us. I didn't know Maurice well, as I was able to say to his wife and uh, boys' sons uh, earlier. But we did meet at conferences and seminars and found common ground across the party divide. Because obviously he was on the centre-right, as we joked, he was um, has the distinction of having given David Cameron's first job in the Conservative Research Department. Um, we talked across the party divide about a shared belief that Europe was where Britain needed to forge its future, and the greatest loss of his early death was obviously to his family, who I do want to acknowledge today. But for the rest of us, his intelligence, his thoughtfulness, his breadth, and actually his essential kindness marked him out, and I think we all really miss him today. Uh, I've been asked to offer some thoughts, but I've been given a very strong disciplinarian um, Injunction that not to fall into the ex-politician's trap of seeing a large audience and thinking that's an invitation to speak for an enormous length of time. <laughs> uh, in honour of Morris's approach to teaching, this is meant to be a genuine interactive process. I'm going to speak for 10-15 um, minutes. Professor President is going to grill me interrogate me, and then you're going to get your chance to um, ask him some hard questions or even ask me some hard <laughs> questions. And I want to say that there's one theme linking the five points that I'm going to make to you today. And it's a simple one. It's that the debate about Europe and about Britain and Europe is not a quote-unquote foreign policy debate. It's instead a debate about the future of Britain, not about the debate about the future of the rest of the world. And sad to say, I think the Brexiteers have woken up to this, have leapt on this, have used this far more effectively than those of us who consider ourselves to be pro-British but also pro-Remain. I think that the Brexiteers are wrong in saying that membership of the European Union ties the hands of British governments, removes power from our hands, dictates the nooks and crannies of British life. Their narrative of British subjugation under a European diktat is to me a grotesque distortion of reality. I say that as someone who negotiated and engaged in Europe. But they're right in the European Union, but they're right in understanding that membership of the European Union is a strategic choice which provides the framework for our social, economic, and political choices as a country here. I call that framework a platform. They call it a prison. But they have been far more successful than us Remainers in understanding that this is a debate about the future of Britain, not about the future of the rest of Europe, It's not pro-British versus pro-European, it's in different ways, it's different ways to be pro-British. And I despair when I hear people on my side of politics, on the left of politics, say, oh, I want us to focus on the bedroom tax, not on Brexit. I want us to focus on domestic policy, not on Brexit. It's precisely because Brexit narrows our economic room for manoeuvre, as well as our political power, and therefore our ability to address issues like bedroom tax or about poverty and inequality in Britain that I'm so against Brexit. So, that's the common theme here, are my five points just to kick us off. The first, I hope, is obvious. The process of Brexit is is a wrecking ball which threatens the constitutional order of the UK. I spent three years as Foreign Secretary Opposing calls by William Hage, who was then the conservative foreign affairs spokesman, but also calls, ironically by the Lib Dems, for a referendum on Europe. In explaining why I opposed a referendum on Europe, I quoted both Attlee and Thatcher. It was easier for me to quote Attlee than it was to quote uh, Thatcher. But they both said referendums are the refuge of dictators and demagogues. And so, in many ways, it has What I didn't see, and I confess to this, I didn't properly see, and I should have seen, was how the referendum would so undermine Parliament in whose name Brexit was originally conceived. Sadly, this is especially the case because the interim Labour leadership after 2050, so not the leadership of my brother Ed, after the 2015 election, the interim leadership made the inexplicable decision to me to reverse its manifesto stand against a referendum and then troop through the lobbies in support of having a referendum. The whole of parliament, therefore, effectively sharpened this sphere that is now aimed at the heart of the legitimacy of parliamentary democracy. The result is this incredible situation today where, if I gave this talk, I'm here to do a sort of Fulbright lecture that's called about the age of impunity, about how civilians and humanitarian aid workers have been killed in war zones around the world. One of the points I draw out is that the age of impunity exists at home as well as abroad. In a hundred countries, there's been democratic recession over the last uh, 13 years. And I say, there are even some countries where members of parliament are debating whether to suspend Parliament to allow a very important piece of legislation to go through. And that country is this one, <laughs> where Tory leadership candidates were saying that Parliament should be prorogued to allow no deal Brexit to go through. So the constitutional wrecking ball is in full motion before you even begin to discuss the future of Northern Ireland as part of the <laughs> even Never mind the future of Scotland. Second point. People say, rightly, that the middle ground has disappeared on the Europe debate, but I think it's more accurate to say that the middle ground has been voided, it's been destroyed. Decisions by the current Prime Minister about how to interpret the election, the the referendum result, after her election as Conservative Party leader in 2016 and specifically her determination not uh, her determination to rule out membership of the customs union and the single market has doomed any centre ground that existed. People like me didn't do Watching up what Nigel Farage promised to do, he promised that the day after the first referendum, which he expected to lose, he'd start campaigning for another referendum to try and win the second time. People like me didn't do that. We accepted the result, and I honestly believe that if Theresa May had set out to bring together cross-party lines. A coalition of support for what's called a quote unquote soft perhaps using the economic safe harbour of the European Economic Area, the EFTA, European Free Trade Association, as a holding place, then we might well have left the EU by now. People like me would not have liked it, but we would have had to swallow it. The centre ground has been killed off by those early decisions. That's why there is polarisation today. Third point. It's really amazing to me that. No one seems to now make the case for Brexit being a good thing in and of itself. Every Conservative candidate said we have to do Brexit. And the reason they give is not that it's going to make us richer or fairer or more powerful. What they say is we have to do Brexit because the people voted for it in 2016. They also say we've got to do it quickly. And the reason they say that is, well, it would be terrible not to do Brexit because of the damage it can do to the Conservative Party not because of the it it is going to do to the country. Now, I'm afraid that's sadly mirrored by some people in my own party who take the position, their position on Brexit according to how it affects the interests of the Labour Party. Both of those are equally wrong. And it is striking to me that I don't hear anyone in the media or elsewhere explaining how Brexit is actually going to enrich or empower the country, not even on the sovereignty argument. It looks more and more like an act of unilateral political disarmament, not an increase in our power. Our reputation for political stability is obviously in a tatters, there's a risk premium associated with investment in Britain, and do only have to talk to anyone outside the country to realise that. We're in this long game of damage limitation. Fourth point, it's really important that those of us who oppose Brexit, in my view, realize that the pressure is not just on the Brexiteers. The pressure is on the rest of us. The Brexiteers, I think, are living in a never-never land of made-up promises and distorted commitments. And the latest uh, idea uh, put forward by Boris Johnson, that somehow this GATT24, general agreement on tariffs and trade, has been completely destroyed by the Governor of the Bank of England uh, overnight. But he's still trading on that. one lesson from living in America and watching President Trump: Don't become obsessed by the contradictions, the lies, the unicorns of the Brexiters. <coughs> it's really important to uh, understand that we've got some hard me ideas, like but some hard questions uh, to answer as well. Those opposed to No Deal seem to disagree on much else, and that is a real problem. <laughs> You can get 500 MPs to oppose No Deal, we you can't get them to agree on what should happen instead. There's a real onus on us, I think, to think beyond the rejection of No Deal. Those of us who were opposed to the first referendum, including myself, have to accept that the legitimacy crisis it has created can only be addressed paradoxically by a further referendum. I don't think Parliament can turn this over without going back to people. To my mind, the fact that people may vote again to leave is not a reason to believe that a second referendum is a valuable thing. Actually, it would legitimise and end the argument. The toughest question for people like me, I think, is a simple one, but it's a very difficult one. In a world where Theresa May's deal no longer exists, and I do understand that we are not yet, because the agreement that she struck was between the British government and the European Union. So it still exists. We're not not in a position where it doesn't exist. It still stands. But if it's not pursued by the next Conservative Prime Minister, then the question we have to answer is whether we should propose a referendum that includes no deal as an option, as well as remain as an option. You can understand why members of Parliament are nervous about it why they don't want to have the electorate a revolver who is to blow our own brains out. But I don't see how you can have a final referendum without it being, a final referendum that's conclusive, without it having real support on the Brexit side of the argument. And that says to me that you've got to countenance, if you want to argue for a second referendum, you've got to countenance having no deal on the ballot paper. Fifth and final the point, then we can get on to the discussion with the professor and then more we'll, uh, wine. Uh, I was in Brussels on Tuesday for the European Development Days. So we were talking about how the European Union is going to engage globally. It's our largest humanitarian aid actor uh, in the world. We have a major partnership. Uh, the International Rescue Committee now has 13,000 staff and 15,000 volunteers, 190 field sites. The European Union is a major uh, partner in uh, that. Uh, Brexit isn't in the top five challenges that the European Union needs to address, but it is vital for Britain that the European project succeeds whether we are in or out. Liberal democracy is under assault from within and without. As I said, a hundred countries have suffered regression in political freedom in the last 13 years, including Hungary and Poland and Malta within the European Union. I was taught at university that once the countries could move from being dictatorships to being democracies, but they didn't move in the other direction. Actually, the experience in Hungary shows you can go in the other direction. The EU is the most advanced rules-based multilateral project, project embodying liberal democratic values of individual freedom, the market economy, and social justice through collective action. That is precious, and as the EU addresses migration, climate, privacy, to name the four issues over the next years, so go the hopes for progress for those of us who continue to be British citizens, whether or not we are in or out of the European Union. Of course, my hope is that Britain is part of those discussions. The pro-European argument, which I think of as the pro-British argument, is about far more than membership of the EU itself. It's about how we defend our freedoms as well as our prosperity, how we maintain our social cohesion, as well as our living standards, and contribute to a safer world, as well as build a better Britain. Millions of particularly young people are rallying to that cause in Britain in a way that is unprecedented, and in a way that never happened in the cameron Osborne campaign for the referendum in 2016. The referendums created for the first time in the UK since the 1970s a genuinely popular mass pro-European and pro-British constituency. The reason, I think, goes back to the point I said linked to my five points. The people's vote idea is not an end in itself. It's a means to the end of a reformed Britain in a reformed Europe. Above all, it's a means to the end of tackling the very causes of the anger that led some of the lead vote in constituencies like mine, to represent South Shields in 2016. The Labour leadership's attempt, and for some reason I was asked to address this, the Labour leadership's uh, attempt to argue that they can deliver the people of South Shields through a quote-unquote jobs-first Brexit is lamentable, because the argument is lamentably bad. Just ask the people of Bridgend or of Swindon, whose major workplaces have suffered massively significant announcements in the last few weeks. Membership of the European Union doesn't guarantee prosperity and peace, but it makes them more likely. And the failure to make that argument is a historic misjudgment, in my view. It's not just that there's no such thing as socialism in one country. There's no such thing as social democracy in one country. We need to band together because the bigger players, notably America and China, are already work together across Europe and they're ready to work with us, leave a park, and they're ready to eat our lunch. So foreign and domestic are connected. You can pretend otherwise, and maybe even win some votes that way. But it's born of a delusion, and that delusion that foreign and domestic policy can be separated needs to be challenged. I think that were Maurice Fraser alive today, he would be challenging it, and we should do so in his absence.
0: Well, thank you, David. I guess that was a bit of a lesson to the rest of us that in about uh, 15 minutes you covered uh, so many different uh, themes and big uh, questions. You finished on the topic, in a sense. The questions aren't going to be so aggressive. So, check yourself, sir. You finished on the theme about causes and the social aspect of Brexit. I wonder if we could begin, because your title is how did we get here, Uh, the causes of Brexit, the reasons why people voted uh, for uh, Brexit. Of course, um, large numbers of people in 2016 voted for the first time in their lives uh, in the EU referendum. Many Labour voters voted. Uh, for, uh, for Brexit. It's said that much of the support for Brexit came from a sense of the left behind, social exclusion. It was our protest against them, um, uh, etc. I wonder, in the new Labour period of government, whether social democracy in the UK has some responsibility the sense of social exclusion, the left behind. In other words, the causes of Brexit, the consequences of a social democratic programme, which actually didn't reach into the wider aspects of our society and made people feel that they wanted to protest. Protest against, uh, against um, New Labour, against uh, the against, uh, the different projects, I guess, against the...
1: Well, it's a good question, and I think we should be self-critical, and there are people here who study the project policy all the time. We should be self-critical, but not be self-flagellating. I mean, honestly, 2016, we've been out of power for six years. I think it's far more powerful to say that people saw the financial crisis as a more proximate cause of their disillusion than they did uh, the uh, health or education or crime or uh, regeneration policies of the government. So that's the first thing. Secondly, um, if you really want to understand why people, why Labour people, vote against vote against the uh, proposals, I think you've got to remember, in the eyes of many Labour people, it, the front of this was a Conservative proposing a uh, version, uh, proposing a vote that for 20 years they've been attacked. In the history of the Conservative leadership of the Pro Remain campaign had been that they spent the previous 20 years attacking the European Union. So I think that's an important factor. In constituencies like mine or the constituency I used to represent, it was very, very hard to get Labour people to come out for what was seen as a Tory proposal, brackets exacerbated by the fact that that the Labour leadership was at best um, lukewarm in how it campaigned. Thirdly, I take the self critical point very seriously uh, because it's evident that the a progress that was made, uh, it didn't see through all sections of society. That the fear in constituencies like mine that the next generation were going to be worse off than the current generation was real. That the sense of um, the grotesque about the inequalities that exist were real. And um, we halted the rise in inequality, but in too many dimensions. Some of them we did actually reverse the rise in inequality, but in other dimensions we didn't. And so I think there's a textured, serious debate uh, to be had about that, um, which, you use the phrase social exclusion, which of course didn't exist in British public policy until we created the Social Exclusion Unit in 1997. And um, the, the, the record, I think, at the end of Our period was that we've done more to help, if you like, the 20th to the 50th percentile in the income distribution than we have for the zero to the 20th percentile. There are people here who do uh, work on this who who can join the conversation. So I think I'm very open to a very uh, self-critical discussion of that. But I really want to. I think it's important to push back against this. Um, Oh, you were just the Labour governments from uh, '97 onwards were just "quote unquote" Tory likes I just don't buy it. Okay, Uh, you
0: mentioned South Shields, your former constituency. Uh, It's only two thirds. Yes, 65%. 65% in favour of of Brexit. Uh, Your successor as the MP for South uh, Shields has argued very strongly against a second referendum. Uh, she had to, I think, resign from the Shadow Cabinet because of the opposition to a second uh, referendum. You're critical uh, here about the Labour stance uh, since the referendum, that it was mute or incoherent hate uh, or whatever. But I think I wonder, for people like uh, your successor, Emma Llewellyn, Mil- Lil- Lil- uh, in South Shields. I totally disagree, I totally
1: disagree, and don't take it from me. Our neighbor in Sunderland, remember Sunderland was the first vote that came out, Um, two MPs in Sunderland, Julie Elliott in Sunderland Central, and Richard Phillips in Sunderland South, Um, they have seen it as their political duty to warn their constituents about what Brexit is going to mean, to see it as their political duty never to put their name to something that is gonna damage their own constituents. And they've seen it as their political duty to rebut the argument that asking people if they want to go ahead with something is somehow anti-democratic. And I really honor those uh, Labour MPs. There are far more Labour MPs who are representing leave voting constituencies who are arguing for a second referendum than are arguing against one. I don't disrespect any of them, but I think they should fall for the argument that it's necessarily the case. It's also important to say, and I think Julie said this publicly, said this publicly uh, she couldn't look herself in the mirror if she didn't warn her constituents about what she thinks Brexit is going to mean for her constituents. Now you can say, well she did that before the referendum, and she did. But that doesn't void her duty to carry on doing it. And I really would urge you to look at the writings of people like Bridget and Julie, look at what Anatoly has written from the about this. And the degree of political bravery, but also political clarity, and if you use use the case study method in Master's Court, it's a really interesting case study, and they're not just on the side that says, I can't afford to tell my constituents that. There's a separate argument, I don't really want to get into, which is that actually, the electoral calculus tells you, you're far more likely to get knocked out as a Labour MP if you Disdain or disregard remain voters than if you disregard or disdain leave voters. Two thirds of Labour voters will remain rather than leave. If you wanted to see the names, so I was in Scotland on Wednesday, Labour in Scotland got 9 percent of the vote because they were deserted by remain voters. So I don't want to get into that, but I'm not making a, I'm not particularly trying to win it as a, um, a, to say there's an electoral calculation for Labour. I'm saying that the idea that it's necessarily for suicide, which you said is, is, is completely unproven. Okay, but um, with the Corbyn strategy of,
0: of constructive ambiguity, something which you've uh, attacked uh, here... Uh, it's just ambiguity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Corbyn strategy of ambiguity. <laughs> Uh, seems to have have, uh, served uh, your party rather well until very recently. So your comments now, and the Shadow Cabinet had a presentation about the uh, the electoral uh, position. Uh, How do you bring a society back together which is so desperately polarised? Well, I'll
1: tell you what, the only way to do it, I think, is dialogue. And that sounds good, but I honestly believe that the, in this mad age that we live in, the only way to do it is literally to have people talking to each other. I, I've been speaking to some of the people who ran this great debate uh, background. and actually there's an interesting, um, sorry about you guys <laughs> over there, you're behind this, you're uh, a bit anything to be done about this rather monstrous, and thing in. But I haven't forgotten my contact with you there. Um, Before Macron did his Grand Debat, there were his Europe Minister. Uh, This may be not that I think she did a thousand meetings around the country. And she said, what was the biggest outcome of it? In a very French way, she said it was rebuilding social relations. Now, if you're right that people feeling that they weren't being listened to, you don't get listened to on Twitter. You don't get listened to even in bloggery and all the rest. The only way you really get listened to is if someone is doing you. I if you want to know how to bring the country together, I am very influenced. I know he's been massively mocked for this in the Tory Leadership campaign, but why did Rory Stewart start talking about citizens' assemblies? He started talking about it because Ireland faced two issues gay rights and abortion, which could have been seismically divisive in that country. But they went about resolving them in a way that was all about creating dialogue. Yeah. And Matthew Taylor's done some great work on this at the Royal Society of Arts the He's He's been a great professor in practice for you, because... He said, it has been. Has, has he? In any way. Anyway. Um, he's done some really interesting work about what it means to rebuild social relations, but also what it means to have a functioning democracy. Well, you remember what's on trial at the moment? Is the idea that democracies can work. And President Xi Jinping, when he says China is now our model for other societies, that's never been said by the Chinese leadership before. It's being said now because of democratic description And we've got some really hard thinking aspects. So your question, I think, is right, how do you rebuild the uh, confidence in society? You can only really do that if you rebuild confidence in democratic systems. And that's going to take real, street by street,
0: Okay, but in the meantime, there's people like Nigel Farage with all of the glib uh, slogans, uh, all of the very effective campaign slogans, and you're suggesting let's do a broader student, let's go to different parts of the country and talk. (coughs) But there's a a focus, a schedule here about the end of October.
1: He's offering a sugar high for a minority of the country, not a minority that should be dismissed, not a minority that should be be thought of as a kind of... uh, marginal, and you got 30% in the European nation, so I take it seriously. But he's offering them sugar. He's offering the politics of anger, not the politics of answers. It's a con. It's a con, what he's offering. He's, it's a con it's absolute harm, which is, we're going to reclaim power. No, you're going to be on like a bobbing cork on the sea of globalization. Right? And President Trump's going to come of eat your chlorinated chicken for lunch, or force you to eat chicken uh, for lunch. And so... Uh, we've got to play this, yet I'll come to your short game, we've got to play this for the long game. Um, now, the short game, which you have to play as well, I honestly say to you, it will be undemocratic not to go back to the people on this Brexit issue, it will be undemocratic because the version of Brexit that is now being proposed was never proposed at the time of 2016 referendum. I mean, No Brexiteer was willing to go out and say we should leave without a deal. And now, no deal Brexit is being presented as the only form of Brexit. It's sort of right-wing Trotskyism. Left-wing Trotskyism says that anything that social democrats do is a betrayal of the working class because it's not true socialism. so they always say it's the betrayal thesis. Whatever a Labour government does, it says it's a betrayal. This is the right-wing version of Trotskyism, which says that any version of Brexit, bar complete... Utter immediate separation from all institutional links to the European Union doesn't count as stress Right? That was never proposed to people
0: okay. three years ago. Okay, I wanted to pick up on a couple of other points and I then want to come to the audience. I would very much like your response, though, to what has been happening uh, in the centre ground. You talked about the centre ground having collapsed. Well, Europe, on this Europe. uh, I wanted uh, to come to the point about Change UK, a number of your... that's not gone very
1: well, has it?
0: So... But uh, the kind of people who joined uh, Change UK, Mike Gates, Chris Leslie, the rest of them, they would have been your long-term political allies in the Labour Party. They've, They've decided that the Labour Party is no longer that vehicle. Um
1: do you have sympathy for the? Well, I have, I have a lot of respect for all of them. I mean, the idea that good colleagues, comrades, should have been, had their their patience tested beyond endurance uh, by the sectarianism and mind the anti-Semitism that some of them have faced is a horror show. And I totally uh, respect uh, them uh, and would never attack them or uh, I am uh, one of the few people who is both a member of the Labour Party and actually voted Labour at the European elections. I mean, that is a very <laughs> small set. Well, I think was going to be the next right, So uh, um, that is a. Uh, a a, a tiny sector within a tribe. I mean, um, but I I actually did, but but ironically, but but, uh, the reason is interesting, Mm -hmm. I did so because the two, the candidates for NEP in the constituency that I was voting for completely disagreed with the leadership line on Europe. So that gave me the, allowed me good conscience to, vote later. So that was your next question. Okay.
0: Okay. That's two topics I wanted to pick up on. Um, On the more international uh, dimension. Uh, I wonder after all of the Brexit uh, difficulties have progressed, really, uh, would the European Union wish to have the UK stay as a member? Uh, Why would Macron, uh, etc., be um, helpful in terms of uh, perhaps going beyond October 31st, accommodating uh, Britain? and welcoming a very awkward member
1: back again. Well, tragically, that is a very good question. Really tragically, it? It's, 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 it's horrific to think that actually it's a perfectly legitimate or perfectly common discussion in, you know, in the corridors of power. Now, what's interesting is that actually there's huge frustration about the May government, huge frustration about the British body politics. But there's still more sadness than frustration about how we've ended up in this pretty past. And the admiration for the UK leads to shaking more than it leads to um, we we'll get rid of, you know, we'll get the economy. And the reason is simple. You said why would Macron? Well, his own interest, actually. It's not actually in French interest to have a destabiliser. It's not actually in French interest to have a recession hit Britain. It's not actually in French interest to have a Europe minus Britain. So it's not a way of France first, but it's in Europe's interest for for Europe to be there. Now, if it was a wrecking a wrecking member, then that's a a different situation. But there is a huge amount of frustration. I I totally get that. Um, But they know, there will be good for them either. And so there will be, my guess is there will be quite a lot of Debate about whether or not to extend if it, it comes to that. But in the end, I don't believe they'll want to be responsible for pushing us out. So they'll be far more patient, they're likely to be more patient than we are. And I think there is a good reason for that. They, they know, I am really struck, they know the bigger picture. But the bigger picture is that America's in retreat, that China's on the rise, it's got an alliance with the, with the Russians, an and wholly alliance with the Russians as it happens, and Europe needs to muster all of its strength So enough problems without friends And they would prefer to have Britain in doing what Lyndon Johnson talked about out rather than outside doing what Lyndon Johnson talked about in And so I think that um, we shouldn't take refuge in that without in any way um, kidding ourselves what a pain in the ass we've been over the last uh, three years. And it is shocking how we continue to have a debate here which says things like, well, you were very careful in the words that you chose right. You, you talked about when Brexit progresses. You didn't say about when Brexit ends. Because you know well that the debate we're having at the moment about backstops and about citizens' rights and about money, that's only the entry point to a much more difficult debate about what's the future economic, social security, and other relations with the rest of the European uh, Union. So we're kidding ourselves if we talk about the end of the Brexit process. The only way to get shot on Brexit is to get shot on Brexit. Otherwise, we're going to be living with it for three, five, seven, it took the Canadians seven years to um, negotiate. And so we've got a hell of a lot of work to do, given the interstices and the interconnections that currently exist.
0: On this, uh, let's finish on the foreign policy uh, aspect. You reminded me that you were, I think, a middle-aged foreign secretary here in the UK. Um, yeah. As a former foreign secretary, let's make the assumption that there's been a hard Brexit. That the government somehow has delivered uh, a Brexit which is um, which is hard. And I wonder if you're looking forward and thinking in terms of UK foreign policy beyond Brexit, what kind of advice, what kind of strategy, what kind of priorities might you give? Uh, to one of your successors as foreign secretary to try to promote, defend British interests. So let's do a hypothetical. Brexit is a given. Let's think beyond Brexit. How do you think Britain can promote its foreign policy interests in
1: that moment? So if you'll permit me, I'll just make like two yeah. points on the I, don't, I hope the first doesn't sound like some scholarship, but the first is we would really, really clear what we mean by hard Brexit, because I think there's a lot of confusion about this, and I think some people in the air actually, actually would be good if they wrote about this. There's no deal with Brexit, and then there's hard Brexit. Hard Brexit is the Canada-style version of Brexit, which means an agreement on trade in goods, but no agreement on trade in services, and none of the surrounding um, agreements yeah. in respect... Of educational cooperation, security cooperation, and a panoply of other ways in which we work. In. This is another LSE audience. Let's assume that they know that. Yeah, but I just think, I think people think no deal, hard Brexit and no deal Brexit are the same thing. They're not. Okay. They're different. Now, uh, so apologies for that, uh, I know from my own experience that membership of the European Union is a force multiplier when it comes to British foreign policy. I mean, just think about the Iran business at the moment. Yes the on the security council, But it's the fact that Britain was part of the E3, Britain, France, Germany, that took us into the Iran-Nuclear negotiations, and that when the Americans joined, gave us a chance, with the Chinese and the Russians, to actually do the deal. So in a world where we're not in the European Union, two or three things come to mind. One, you've got to have some political relationship on foreign policy. So the whole business about the way European policy making on foreign affairs works and how and whether it engages with the British foreign secretary is, is, is number one on the agenda. Uh, number two, uh, we have to think how do we use our assets. Our assets include membership of the Security Council, membership of NATO, but also our development budget, which is a source of soft power. Uh, and thirdly, the proof of that, if you think about a country like Norway and the role that it's played over the last 20 or 30 years, it's, what's given Norway clout? One, it's a big spender. Two, it's willing to use high power. Three, um, it's chosen an area of the world where it wants to make itself pivotal. And that area of the world it chose was in the Middle East. It wasn't an accident that the Oslo Accords happened in Oslo. It's not an accident that the Norwegians are the chair of something called the Ad Hoc Liaison Committee on the Palestinian Economy and support for uh, Palestine. But there are lessons from countries like that about how you, not how you throw your weight around, but how you use convening power to make a difference. The great danger from the one force is we'll try and do everything. And we'll try and do everything solo. Because that just doesn't work in the one. of Okay.
0: With time running on, let's open to questions. And if David forgives me, I think I probably should stand up this next Of course, yeah. I can see people. I'm sure there are colleagues, yes, there are colleagues in red with microphones. uh, (coughs) uh, It's an invitation to any of you upstairs or downstairs to ask you a question. If you simply uh, identify who you are and then come fairly quickly to the question, and if they are in the green, you'll take take three or four. Okay, Uh, you've got a panel paper and a panel in common. The lady here, please. Hey, I'm Julia
2: McFarlane from ABC News. David, thank you very much uh, for your speech. I wanted to ask, is the surely inevitable second referendum on Scottish independence a worthy price to pay for people's vote in the opinion? Thank you.
0: Uh, there some other hands. Uh, can we take the gentleman in the middle of the back. please? My
3: name is Mark Morgan, I'm a close friend of... Maurice sort Fraser of close friend his wife. I am um, as passionate as pro-European as Morris was. But um, I do have reservations about the idea of a second referendum. If uh, no, the leave can put a win, particularly with the no-deal option, which you mentioned, that uh, it would put an end to hopes of close links with Europe. If it were a small margin in favor of remain at risk, certainly nothing. So there's just uh, something which mystifies me, I'd like to ask for your opinion on. Theresa May was given six months to bring forward three times to votes which were certain to be lost uh withdrawal agreement. given six weeks for talks with Labour, which were bound to be inconclusive. Parliament was given less than two weeks to try to come to an agreement. One of the motions put forward by Ken Clark were defeated by just three votes, so two MPs would have need, needed to change their mind and there would have been a parliamentary majority. Why has the option of asking MPs of all sides to come together to try to find a solution which would be acceptable been so completely uh, abandoned? And, and why, apparently, you're not in favour to be yourselves, so which you haven't mentioned, is as possible?
0: Thank you very much. Can we uh, take the...
3: Um, Jeffrey shirt uh, here Hi, my name is Andreas I just want to ask, uh, you mentioned five points about Brexit, but there is another underlying locomotive of multiple which is kick the foreign out, immigration. Can you elaborate a bit more why we're not
1: talking about these points, which are very strong on the Brexit argument? Thank okay. you. Let's just off with that and start and, and work backwards. I didn't actually watch the Tory leadership um, debate on uh, Tuesday, but I went through it afterwards. What was the word that wasn't mentioned? Immigration. Mm-hmm. It's actually extraordinary if you think about it. That if, in my list, when I said uh, the supposed benefits of uh, Brexit, if you were a Brexiteer, the first thing you said was, whether we have control of our own immigration, we reduce the number of European uh, immigrants over here. But even that's not mentioned. Uh, now, now, I don't want to pretend, I don't want to uh, wear rose tinted spectacles and say, it, it's going away, no one cares, etc. etc. Et but I think that it's been a salutary three years in um, people coming to terms of what it means to start losing the benefits of the people who come to the UK. I, mean, I also think it's been salutary that um, the, the inhibitions of speaking up for um, what's called free movement, but it was actually in various ways managed movement of people, um, the inhibitions have uh, sloughed off a bit on that. They've been they've been reduced, and so there's more willingness to defend the benefits of a more open and engaged, of um, uh, openness and engagement to European workers who want to come uh, here and on whom we uh, depend. So you're right to say it was a major uh, issue. But again, that was a con in the um, referendum uh, the campaign. It was the politics of anger, not the politics of. Um, answers, just to work back through. I mean, the reason why Parliament hasn't given it is because of the narrow-mindedness with which the Brexit issue has been approached by the leaderships of the two main parties. And Parliament hasn't been able to assert itself because that large number of MPs who are against no deal haven't been able to cohere in our uh, system. And that's not a very good answer, but I think it's a a truthful answer. I honestly think if, if Theresa May, I honestly don't understand why she felt she didn't have the power. <coughs> she won the Tory leadership election to Neptune who's who was her opponent, dropped out, and the first thing she did was bend away from the majority towards the extreme. And she had a unique opportunity then to say, look, I've got ai don't think of her as an extremist person herself, uh, she was a quite a commonsensical person. She I honestly you don't understand why she didn't say, look, whichever side you're on, we know we have to proceed from here. Let's try and find a way that honors the result or respects those who were in the minority. And that's why I think that uh, I didn't start arguing for a second referendum until August 2017. I didn't do what Farage promised to do. Because you're not sure there lots of downsides to do it. Of course, the referendum campaigns can still... Empower dictators and democrats, or be a refuge for dictators. And I just don't think you can reverse it without having the uh, engagement, and well, it's preferable to have the engagement. Um, just on Scotland, but, um, it's not inevitable, and it's not a price of that. you would take the Labour
0: key?
2: I'm Ava, uh, I'm a political activist and uh, an MA student at King's College London University. Um, I wanted to know what are your thoughts on the recent expulsion of Alistair Campbell from the Labour Party after he publicly stated that he had voted for the Labour Democrat in the yeah. European election and whether the Labour Party's reaction was fine.
0: Yeah. Okay, thank you. for the death of the enemy.
3: Um, the Are there any circumstances in which you would
1: consider re-entering British politics, and what would Well, I've never been asked that before, so I
2: need some time to think <laughs> <laughs> the of the, uh, here. Thank, you. Thank you. I'm from China now, our visiting professor at R.C. Thank you, Mr. Liu and thank you for your brilliant lectures, and especially your comments on China. And uh, I think you still remember, we are Foreign Secretary, you visit China, we receive you in a way you would be the next Prime Minister. And it, till now, you are the Foreign Secretary, ask the most questions about the Chinese Communist Party. And it's obvious that you did a lot of research about the Chinese Communist Party. My question is that, and taking, about, taking account of the past 70 years, and this period the 40 years, <coughs> how and what do you think of the job you have done? And as an old friend of China, and one who knows Chinese Communist Party well, do you like to give, give us some suggestions, especially them? That kind of leaders. By the way, I'm from my work for the Central Party School, which is the largest party school in the world. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Let we take one more
0: question? Sure. Let's take someone over here. We'll take the hand over to the lady here the Thank you. Yeah, Ancord. A scholar from another place.
3: Has said that, the can- that one of the candidates for the Tory leadership has described the EU as being like Soviet Russia. Uh, the other candidate has described the EU as being like Nazi Germany. We're obviously in for a not very dialogue sort of future immediately. Can you see any of the nuts and bolts that would then produce the situation in which we can have a second referendum? <laughs>
1: Um, but the process is absurd. And so, um, it's almost as absurd as the length of time it's taken to reverse that decision. Um, I saw I, mean, I, I saw Lasky's it that it's and we were, and, oh wait, he's loving the attention of these people. I should say that as well. Um, uh, but, um, it's, uh, it's absurd and sectarian and disrespectful. Um, the, uh, the second question was about my own position. I always say the same thing on this, which is that I decide what to do professionally, this where I think I can have maximum impact from the things that I care about, and I think that uh, I feel a real sense of responsibility to the thirteen thousand people who are looking to me as the leader of their organisation at the moment. Uh, I'm. Um, I feel very privileged to be doing something that is normatively very meaningful, which I learn from, which is inflexibility, flexibility, and which allows me to make a difference between vulnerable people in the world. And as long as that's the case, I'll carry on doing that. Uh, Before I've always said, do you know what I'm going to do next? And I always say, no, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And do you want to say, you'll never do this, that, or the other? And I say, no, why Why say never? I don't don't know what I'm going to do. Next, someone just said to me, ILBC's money, is this your last job? And I said, I'm only 53. Come on, i 90. So um, I don't know what I'm going to be uh, next. But thank you for asking. Hey, the,
0: um, so on the assumption that you were to re-enter yeah, to British politics, could you live
1: in the current Labour Party? Well, I'm a member of the current Labour Party. So I, I, don't, I don't want to get into the hypothetical of your the first ones. I don't want to lead people on, or get a, to start something off. But um, I'm a number-of-way party, and am you to decide not to be, you'll hear about it. <laughs> uh, 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 Professor from China, thank you very much for your question. Look, we all, living at this time, we have a duty to try to understand not just what's happened in China in the last, especially since i but also understand the way different layers of Chinese society think about it. So there's, there's one book that basically said, Don't learn Mandarin, learn how the Chinese think. And so that's why it like the one that you're part of, uh, I think, are really important. I make a point to go to China at least once a year um, since I left office. Uh, and every time I go, I'm astonished by how much it's. Developed. Um, not all the changes are in the directions that were anticipated, not all the changes could be described as consistent with reform and opening up, especially the latter. Uh, I certainly would not presume to give any lessons to the Chinese Communist Party since it is a conspicuously more successful in holding onto power than I ever <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that, but I think there are a couple of things that uh, are uh, striking and I think uh, important. The first is that um, on the issues of the the global system, you're at the party school, so you're actually in a very good place to um, advise us on this, to give your opinion. I think all of us here need to understand. The way in which China is a swing voter in deciding the fate of the global multilateral system. I just want to take a moment, if you'll excuse me, to, to explain why it's a swing voter. Because you think well, why is a swing voter? Because it's one and a half billion people, one, one, million people. It's a very big economy. No, that's not the reason it's a swing voter. I think that China and Chinese leadership are the swing vote on the future of the multilateral system for the following reason. On the one hand, the foundation stone of for Chinese foreign policy is non-interference in internal affairs. China holds fast to the idea that sovereignty, that national sovereignty, means that what goes on within a state is only the responsibility of that state, especially if it has anything to do with human rights. And the governments of the of issues within that state are only there. On the other hand, however, and this is what makes it swing voters, China also is a massive stakeholder in a rules based international order. China could be a huge potential loser from the undermining of the rules based multilateral system. <coughs> China is Has invested itself in the rules based multilateral system. And if you think about some of the challenges ahead, climate change, um, nuclear security, China needs a strong multilateral system. So there you have this real tension. I don't know if you agree, Professor, but there's a tension at the heart of the Chinese system. On the one hand, they are neuralgic, they are completely determined that there will never be any internal, external interference in their internal affairs. Not just their internal affairs, that leads them to be deeply skeptical about um, complaints about what countries are doing within their own borders. On the other hand, they are strategic, they are fact based. They are realistic about the fact that international issues surge into domestic politics and domestic economy and society. They know that issues of climate, public health, trade, security are international issues that can't be governed by a network of fortresses. And that makes me think that China is a swing voter, and I think that the commitment of the Chinese school that you are associated with, also I visit the Academy of Socialism when I go to, uh, um, when I go to Beijing, and the um, director of the Academy of Socialism is a, I think I'm right in saying, a vice minister in the Chinese system. He's someone who went to uh, high school or university with President person uh, Xi Jinping. And uh, there's, a, there's a commitment there that I think, to study and to think, that I think is very, very uh, striking. And so I'm, uh, one of the reasons I deeply regret that the Obama administration, when it did its pivot to Asia, it got uh, knocked off track. Uh, and one reason it got knocked off track is it didn't pivot to Asia with Europe. I think if Europe and America had pivoted to Asia um, together, two things would have happened. One, it would have seemed less like a military move. It would have been less... Um, easy for it to be dismissed as being military but And secondly, it would have more chance of success. Because it would have been a grounded uh, relationship. I still think that's really important. Great. Right. Perhaps we can have one more, long... one more round of uh, questions. Okay. Can we take the lady in the centre of the back? <laughs> ah, sorry. Um, and of well, I'm terribly sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I got so intoxicated with my own um, uh, so intoxicated sort of psychology. Um, look, uh, it, 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 it's a horror show when people start. Uh, I mean, I don't even want to talk about the idea of people talking about Nazi it, Germany. I mean, it's just so painful. But the uh, the idea that um, you compare the European Union the is certain, offensive, of course, a lot of offense. Um, and that was said, I was sensitive guy in the context. Um, and I'm sure he regrets it, actually, because he can see he made him look stupid. He uh, doesn't do any good to anyone. Um, but how do I think um, things might, even your question was could they conceive of the resolve themselves? Look, I don't believe that 315 yeah. and They've all taken leave of their senses. I don't believe that the Taliban have completely taken over the Tory part. And I I don't, I I may be wrong about that, but I I think that um, you've got to bank on the fact that there are still, uh, I mean, Ken Clark gave this lecture last year, and um, you've got to believe he's not alone, although he's clearly part of a declining region. The party. But I come back to the point that there's no, the fact that there's no parliamentary majority for no deal is when we turned in the back, and there must be a parliamentary majority for um, a way that addresses Brexit in a grown up manner, that takes the country seriously and the state seriously. And I think that that, I don't think there's any inevitability about a referendum, as said earlier, but I think it's a, it's the only way out of this morass that I can see, notwithstanding well, all the downsides that this information
2: by the line. Okay, let's take, let's take a couple of more questions. The um, hi, thank you, I'm a student at ICR. Um Question I've got is, in the recent European elections, the pro-Brexit side, in particular the Brexit party, they were well organized, they were well funded by various mysterious means, and they had a very simple message, while the Remain side were all over the place. If you had a second referendum, are you
0: sure that plan? Okay, and can we take the gentleman? No. Sorry. Thank you. Michael McLean, friend and colleague of Morris. Um, I've got a question David. This is not your career plans, uh, but when you took the choice, you did, uh, our current Prime Minister would probably say you elected to be a citizen of nowhere. Actually, what you've been doing, albeit in a parallel universe, may have suggested some of the answers to these questions. And I just wonder what you can say about the work you've done in the NGO world, with corporates, the international perspectives that you have taken away. How much have they helped you to understand what's going on here? And I'm not going to ask, how would you therefore implement? But I really do want to know what sort of journey this has been. And how much relevance it has <coughs> for citizens of that. <coughs> Thank
3: you. Um, Hi, my name is Atul. Uh, I came down from Mobile this morning. And um, the answer to this is predicated really on what the good breaks that we have. So I'm curious so
0: what do you think the potential advantages of whatever rights that we get will be? And how do you think using that we could then considering this the path we're on now? Just, just explain it a bit more. So, um, so depending on what type of break we have, what do you personally think the advantages of breaks will be? And using that, how do you think we can then progress the country forward into mm-hmm. the path we're on now? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's just squeeze in one last question, which is, uh, maybe get rid of what you would like. Yeah.
3: On the issue of whether the referendum should have been called, wasn't the drum beat beat, just getting louder and louder and louder, like it was in Scotland? And really, if we're going to decide these things, no, not on referendum, but on elections, if you went back to 1983, Michael Ford would have taken us out without a referendum, taken us out of the European Union, and many of the people who voted for him in 1983 would have been pro-European. So isn't all this aversion to referendums,
1: something that's surfaced since 2016, really. Well, let me just ask the last one first. I, mean, I think you can go back and look at the hands-on, I mean, the aversion to a referendum, I promise you not a sort just being a sore loser. I, mean, I really promise you. Uh, and it wasn't just that I feared that we'd lose a referendum in every 30 million years. I remember I took Article 50 through the House Commons was part of the Lisbon Treaty. And I remember saying to the civil servants at the time, they, they, they said, Oh, this is the, uh, the, the, the debate, and this is Article 50, this is the way it works, you trigger the thing, and then two years later you're out. And I remember the same thing, but hang on. You're telling me that once you trigger Article 50, you've got to leave after two years. Doesn't that give all of the power, all of the negotiating leverage, all of the um weight? To Europe, I mean, puts the European Union in a completely polar position. And they said, yeah, 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 of course. But that's, don't, don't worry about that. There's no country, they said. No country in its right mind is going to trigger Article 50 without having agreed beforehand how it's going to leave. <laughs> so, as we took that through, there were repeated calls for a referendum. I mean, William Hague often won the debates. He was a brilliant debater. Uh, but I, I think he was wrong because what we've done is created this dual mandate. And, look, Michael Foot lost in 1983 for a number of reasons, but one reason was we had a completely, put it politely, bad European policy. And people voted against it. I mean, that was, in a way, that was democracy working. Labour only became electable when it had a same European policy. Now, the uh, Tories never dared put into their manifesto a pledge to withdraw from the European Union. What they put in was a pledge to have a referendum, which that I think was wrong. And I'm afraid it's, it's come untruth, and it hasn't been. I don't think that's the future of... I don't think that's the way to we build trust in democracy. Um, now, I don't want to seem close-minded, especially if you come from Liverpool, especially or uh, especially for this, but it's part of this. Honestly, scratch my head about the advantages of Brexit, and I'm, I'm saying that to—I promise you—not in a kind of um, glib way or in a way that's trying to be Yahoo sucks. So sort I'll of just say that people that I disagree with, nothing to be, uh, nothing to be said about it. There's no point in that. Way past that. Um, I mean, the alleged advantages of Brexit on the right and on the left. It turns out, yeah. You know, if you're on the left, you say, oh, by being outbred, we can really pursue socialism." Well, no one's going to stop you nationalising railways, really. even if you're in the European Union. It's ridiculous. Um, the everything gets harder, and maybe this this is this takes me to Michael's um, question because I mean, first of all, perspective. Distance gives perspective. Um, and, of course, absence makes the heart grow fonder as well. So you, 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 the country seems it's Sweden on the other side of the fence. But what do you do with that respect? Uh, there a number of things come out. One, uh, when you're out of politics, you see more and more the dynamism that exists out of politics. And the reason for being optimistic about this country or about the rest of the world is the extraordinary, people, the extraordinary things that people do. Where I see it in my job at the moment, when people say to me, well, how can you be optimistic when there are 28 half million refugees, 40 million internally displaced, 500,000 people killed in Syria, 700,000 people driven out of Myanmar. How do you be optimistic? And I say, I have no right to be pessimistic when the people we're helping, day by day, are living with courage and endeavor to try and build a better life themselves. So I've got no excuse scheme the privileges I've got to be pessimistic. Uh, if you look at civil society around the world, but also, in this country, you see enormous diamonds and you see real problems solved. There's no problem that isn't being solved somewhere, but it's often being solved by civil society, not by governments, being solved by the private sector, sometimes by, not by governments. So, that's the, 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 the first Secondly, the global um, perspective makes you worry about the US. the the phenomenon of American isolationism and unilateralism is not a a purely Trump phenomenon. Um, It's an extraordinary country. It's got miraculous strength. But, by virtue of geography, constitution, politics, scale, diversity, its ability to be a strategic, patient, global anchor is really challenged. And so the second thing that perspective gives you is that uh, the, the drivers of European culture are that we can't rely on them to do it for us. So I think that comes through um, pretty strongly as well. And then without, I, mean, I, I don't want to do an old lecture on this, so it's the third and final point without wishing to blow smoke about it. Uh, Britain's got massive problems at the moment. But it's still a country where there is enormous effect, for which there is enormous affection, for which there is enormous respect, for which there are enormous, in which there are enormous assets. And you still see that. The university sector is a very good example on that, actually. Um, but not the only, one, example. And uh, you, what one worries about is that the, the assets get squandered by some of the... Um, nativism and nationalism that's done in the name of people that actually betrays them And that's obviously the, the And that, that leads me to um, the first question in mean, Remember, for all that they were fragmented and, I don't know if you said useless, but um, you, uh, you implied, uh, the pro-European, pro-Remain parties, even if you exclude Labour, got more votes than the... Sorry, I can't see you, but the, uh, the, the, they got more votes than the Brexit parties. So the words, this list. At the, at the much more line, the, like, the second thing, I didn't explain as well in my original um, remarks. It, I don't want to say it doesn't matter to me, but the argument that we might lose a second referendum is not a good argument not to have it. It's really important. It's, that's, that's why I'm trying to persuade people that I'm not just trying to have a second referendum to get a different result. because that's the allegation Robert Shumsley, yeah. i very little the Tony and I know from uh, university days, wrote very good piece saying, well, the people who are for a second referendum, they, actually want a diff- they want a different result. I'm not saying that. I honestly say to you that for the stability of the country, it's better to have a second referendum that's lost than it is to not to have a second referendum. And the reason is that at the moment we're on course for everyone feeling betrayed. If you have a second referendum, which, if it gives a leave verdict, no one can say that we're not going into this with our eyes wide open. Now, you might... uh, You you said, who'd win? I actually think it's better to say, I don't know. I mean, probably, I've got every election prediction wrong. (laughs) uh, I didn't predict Trump, but I didn't predict the Brexit referendum. So, (coughs) a bit of humility is... uh, in order, but actually that's not the point. The reason, it would be undemocratic not to have another referendum because of the fact that the Brexit offer is completely different from the Brexit was offered in 2016. But secondly, because we need to come out, come through this, including for its next stages, which are going to involve all sorts of difficult negotiations in a way that has legitimacy and credibility at the end of it. And I think that's an important democratic argument for a referendum, or whatever the result, rather than just a social and economic argument about why Brexit is a disaster, which was the answer that I gave to the, um, the government. If to let me just say um, one other thing. Obviously, I'm kind of um, you off my day job talking about uh, Europe uh, today. I'm um, uh, the CEO of a large NGO, and I think it's only fair if I uh, we say to you that would be great if some of you were able to have a look at what I was talking about elsewhere uh, this week, which is about what the age of impunity means for the most vulnerable people in the world and how it relates to this Brexit question that we're talking about today. Because it, I promise you it, it comes into it. If you go to the IRC website, which is rescue.org, you can learn about some of the things that we're doing. You can also find the um, lecture that I've given in, in London. in uh, in Oxford, and you'll also be able to find out about some of the really quite extraordinary work that has been done by my colleagues in um, the most difficult circumstances. I'm burdened this week by the fact that last Saturday in Niger, one of our colleagues was killed visiting a water station by Mokdo Haram. On Monday, another colleague uh, killed in Nigeria, uh, where we've got people working in the east of Nigeria, and they really have got hard jobs. Uh, those of us who are in professional positions uh, have nothing like the challenge that they got and it would be uh, fitting, I think, if um, you were able to learn about what they're doing, bring that to bear in your thinking about the future of this country and about the global issues that we've discussed today. Many thanks. I don't think I've been to a lecture before where there's been an advertisement for lectures at other universities. <laughs> uh,
0: I now realise that other universities do exist in the UK. But uh, well, we've covered a number of uh, topics and I'm obviously very grateful for that. Uh, some of you will be aware that the LSE has a programme on Brexit, a number of events associated with it. Uh, we we'll look forward to uh, continuing those, those lectures. Uh, We have podcasts and downloads, Uh, let me simply mention on the Brexit and BBC program, I was looking recently and we found that the average number of downloads for these kind of lectures is of the order of 15,000 per event. So you're speaking to 230 people here today, but no doubt there will be many podcast downloads from different parts of the world. Which is a nice advertisement. We can all learn the nature of advertising at the end of, the, of an event. Uh, I've, uh, mentioned the LSE program which will continue the next academic year. So, can you now please join me in thanking